Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. many evangelism programs that we have had in our churches over the past few generations and many textbooks written on how to reach people for Christ effectively. Some of you in seminary have probably recently read uh, the revised version. It's about 20 years old, the revised version of a book called Concentric Circles of Concern. It's about relational evangelism. I didn't read it when I was in seminary because it hadn't been published yet. I finished in 1980 and it came out that year. The author was Oscar Thompson. Oscar had, was from Gonzales, had been a pastor in Seguin and then Arlington. And then he came in 1974 to Southwestern Seminary as a young professor working on his PhD and he taught evangelism. And at the age of just 41, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a deadly cancer which is almost always terminal, and he was in the hospital. And the doctor told him, we've done everything for you that we can. You, you indeed are terminal, and there's nothing else we can do. I had him in class in 1977, in the fall of 1977, and he was able, this was a, a, a three, two, two years later, he was able to give his testimony and stand in class. He said, I was lying in the bed there and I'd been a minister of the gospel for many years, but then it hit me. What the Lord wanted was for me totally to put my hands, my, my, my life in his hands. Now, I'd done that as a Christian when I came to Christ. I'd done it as a minister when I surrendered to the gospel. But what he meant was, Oscar, I want you to tell me that whatever I want for you is best and that you are completely resigned to my will. And he said, I felt this great peace that came over me in the hospital bed. I knew that if I lived, I would live for Christ. And if I died, that I would see him. And a great peace came over me. And a few weeks later, when they did the test, the blood test and all for him to see how the cancer had progressed, they were shocked. There was no sign of cancer. It was in complete remission. And he gave this testimony in class. He also said, you know, friends, I don't know if that was a miracle or not. I don't know how it happened. I know, it, I, I believe it was a miracle, but I don't know if you would classify it as, as a, a, a classical miracle. You know, the, the body has amazing curative powers, and anxiety also accelerates disease. And I wonder how much of my absolute resignation to the Lord and peace that I had somehow released capability of my body to fight the cancer. He said, but I'll tell you this, if that's the way it happened, it was still God who did it. And he gave a powerful testimony. Was it a miracle or wasn't it? I believe it was. 
I had him in 1977. He lived another three years. And in 1980, when Clyde went to, and Kay went to Arkansas, and we left and uh, went to study church history abroad. Later that year, Oscar Thompson died December of 1980. And his wife, Carolyn, published this book posthumously. Was it a miracle or not? Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, in an interview with Time Magazine in 2006, said this about miracles. Any belief in miracles is flat contradictory. Flat contradictory not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. In his book, Snake Oil and Holy Water, that's a provocative title, <laughs> he said this, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for, for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. What's he saying to believers? You're, you're not very sophisticated. You don't get it. You're not well educated. You're just little kids. Christopher Hitchens, one of his colleagues in the New Atheist Movement, in his book, God is Not Great, apparently had been accused of being a bit snobbish about his approach to religion. He said this, it is not snobbish to notice the way in which people show their gullibility and their herd instinct and their wish or perhaps their need to be naive and to be fooled. Gullibility provides a standing invitation for the wicked and the clever to exploit their brothers and sisters. No honest account of the growth and persistence of religion or the perception of miracles and revelation is possible without reference to this stubborn fact. What's the stubborn fact? That people who are religious are simply gullible. So that's their opinion about miracles. And yet miracles are at the heart of the message of the gospel. We want to talk about miracles this morning as part of our apologetic series we talked about mystery last week, and remember we said not all mysteries are miracles, but all miracles are certainly what? They're mysterious. You know, when we look at what we said about biblical theism, our definition at the very beginning about two months ago, we said that God is eternal, self-perpetuating being without beginning or end, that he's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He is a bodiless person who is spirit. He's creator and sustainer of the universe, which means that he is supernatural. He is the ultimate reality that explains everything else. He is thoroughly good and the source of all moral obligation, and he is perfectly free. There's nothing that binds him. He exists and acts independently from anything or anyone else. So when you look at that definition, there's some things, I think, that have implications for miracles. Number one, God is omnipotent. That means that he is, indeed, if, if he is the God we believe him to be, he is powerful enough to perform them. He is perfectly free. That means that he can choose to do anything that is consistent with his being, including miracles. He is ultimate reality. That means that nothing stops him from doing a miracle if he chooses to do so. 
He's creator. His very act of creation is the greatest miracle that ever occurred because he created out of what? Nothing. He is sustainer of the universe, and that means that he remains in control of the universe, not like the deistic view of God. He is involved in the universe and the cosmos, and that means that if he chooses to disrupt natural law, he can do so, and he is good, the source of all moral obligation, but he is thoroughly good inside and out. He intervenes when he does for the good of his creation and for his creatures. You know, other worldviews do not believe in miracles. Pantheists believe that everything is God and God is everything, therefore God cannot intervene because God can't act upon himself from the outside because there is no outside. <laughs> Panentheists believe that God is the mind of the universe and the universe is the body of God and therefore he cannot perform miracles because he is subject to the mind, is subject to the body acting on him. Polytheists, some believe in miracles to some degree, but only in as much as one little God over here can do one little bit in one part of the universe. They do not believe that there is a supreme God that has control over the whole universe. Finite goddists believe that God indeed created the universe miraculously, but now is incapable of changing the course because he cannot intervene in natural law. You see, it is unchangeable. And very similarly, deists believe that God created the universe, but he chooses not to intervene in the universe. He set the universe into motion with natural law, and he made it inviolable, and therefore he will not intervene. And then we come to the Hitchens and the Dawkins of the world. They're naturalists. They're atheists. And many agnostics and relativists follow a naturalistic philosophy, worldview. They say that only nature exists, only matter exists. It is a closed system, and therefore there's nothing outside the closed system to affect it. And therefore miracles cannot occur. You see, there's a main clash in worldviews here. Atheists are naturalists, and they believe that since God does not exist, miracles cannot occur. And... God's existence cannot be proven by so-called miracles because miracles don't happen. On the other hand, we as theists, we believe in the God that we have described earlier, who is the biblical God. We believe that not only are miracles possible, but they're possible because God exists and he is supernatural. He is supernatural. He is above nature and he can intervene in nature. And miracles are a key part of the message of the good news of God. There's a stark contrast then. More than any other issue, probably, than except God's existence itself, more than any other issue, the disagreement about miracles is what separates theists and Christians from atheists and agnostics. So what is a miracle? How do we define a miracle? Um, when we were talking about the ad that we were going to have last week for this week's sermon, uh, we had some discussion. Well, you know, what do we tell people that they're going to come and hear about? What is a miracle? What shall we say? Well, there are two problems there. One is, how do you define a miracle? And then the other is, when you've defined it, how do you identify it? How do you know when it's happened? You see, it raises the issue that we talked about with Oscar Thompson. Was that a miracle or was it not? The first problem is how we define a miracle. And David Hume, the skeptic to which we have referred several times from the 18th century, skeptic, uh, Scottish philosopher, defined a miracle this way. 
He said, it is a transgression of a law of nature by a particular will of the deity, that is, of the God, or by intervention of some invisible agent. So you see what you've got there is you've got the law of nature that's running and running and running, and then there is someone outside of that law of nature that intervenes and interrupts it. And this became the benchmark definition of miracle because of Hume's key role in apologetic debates in the 18th century. The fact of the matter is the Bible does not, does not emphasize that interruption. No, it happens, but it doesn't emphasize the interruption as much as it emphasizes God's prerogative to do so and his power to do so. You see, biblical miracles, not all of them, are an interruption of the natural process. God can interrupt, we believe. God can, in fact, intervene and change natural law temporarily. But some miracles are not that. Some miracles are a matter of God using nature in a timely way. So there are different views about miracles in, in Christian circles. One of those was held by Augustine. It's called the weak view of miracles. He said there, there's no such thing as a miracle. Now, what he was not doing, he wasn't saying that the things that Jesus didn't do weren't miraculous in nature, but he, he defined miracles differently. He said, what you've got there is uh, we simply don't know enough about nature to know how God did it. In other words, what God did is he built into nature at the very beginning hidden potentialities that he could use that we don't know about. So he's got natural law, and embedded in that, there are things that he can use to accomplish things that are amazing and remarkable to us that we don't understand. Now, make no question or doubt about it. Augustine believed that when Jesus changed water to wine, it, it was a miracle, but it wasn't a miracle that then violated natural law. There's a stronger view of miracles, and that was by Thomas Aquinas. He adapted uh, Augustine's view, and he said, you know, in an absolute way, yes, theoretically, uh, it is going against nature. Uh, it, it, it isn't going against nature because, you see, God is in control of natural law, and so it doesn't violate God's control of natural law. But he said, the fact of the matter is, later what Hume said, is accurate. You see, miracles go beyond natural order. They do intervene into natural order. So today, most apologists will take that position, and I take that position. I think we should not be fearful about taking a strong view of miracles, not reluctant to define a miracle as the interruption of natural law, because God can and does do it. There's a second problem. How do we identify miracles? How do we know when a miracle has happened? Well, that has to do with providence. What is providence? Well, God is creator. He made the universe. And God is also what? Sustainer. He's in providential control. Providence is nothing more than God's continued control of the universe. The universe hangs together, not just because matter exists and because natural laws and order. It hangs together in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the, the authority and the power of the universe. That is providence. But there are different kinds of providence. There's ordinary providence. That's God's normal control of the universe through indirectly, through natural law that he has put into place without intervening, without any special timing or anything like that. And this ordinary providence, miracles are not occurring. But God's in control. 
There's also extraordinary providence. And that's when God, in an extraordinary way, then directly intervenes, interrupts natural law. He defies any natural explanation for it. So, for example, in John, the second chapter, we read about the second miracle at Cana from John's gospel just a few moments ago. What was the first miracle at Cana? Jesus did what? He changed water to what? To wine. Well, folks, (laughs) that is unnatural. That is an intervention in natural law. Uh, In Joshua, the 10th chapter, uh, God stopped the sun. That is an intervention in natural law. In John, the 11th chapter, Jesus raises Lazarus. He was dead, deader than a doornail. He'd been dead for almost three days. And Jesus raised him from the dead. That was a miracle of extraordinary providence. And then there are things that we call special providence. What does it mean? It means that God uses natural causes for special divine purposes. There's not really technically a violation of natural law. What he does is he alters its course, maybe, or its timing. So, for example, was the parting of the Red Sea a miracle? Well, absolutely. But it was, it, was it a complete violation of natural law? No. The Bible tells us that how did it occur? God caused a strong what? East wind to blow. Hmm. See, see, there's a matter of timing and force. Uh, there's some people that say that the, you know, the Israelites went through a shallow part of the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, and it wasn't too deep and all of that. And, you know, okay, the wind blew it dry and all that. They try to diminish the effect of the miracle. And, of course, you know the real miracle then, and you've heard the joke. Uh, the real miracle then is how all the Egyptian army drowned in a few inches of water afterwards, you know, but... The stopping of the Jordan, was that a miracle? Yes, it was a miracle, but we believe that what happened was that God caused a rock slide upstream. Now, that's not in the Bible, but it has happened several times in Palestinian history for the Jordan River to stop because of that. And that's truly miraculous because it had to happen at just the right time so that when the priests put their feet in the riverbed, the river stopped at exactly that time. Joshua, the third chapter, I mean, uh, uh, when Joshua and the uh, Israelites went across in Joshua, the third chapter. When Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and they're in the jail, their chains were broken. That was a miracle. But it was the use of natural force. What caused it? An earthquake at just the right time. So these are examples of special providence. And then there are, of course, false miracles. False miracles that are not extraordinary providence, they're not special providence, they're not providence at all. They're magical tricks that people perform, psychosomatic cures, irregularities in nature, and even satanic signs. Is Satan capable of doing remarkable things that can fool people? Absolutely. So when we look at miracles that are identified in the Bible, there are three terms that are typically used. I'm sure you're familiar with them. One is signs. And the purpose of signs is to draw attention, usually, to the messenger and or the message. In Hebrew, it's oath. In Greek, it's semion. Both languages have a word for this. Signs. Wonders. Something that's truly amazing. 
astonishing, grabs your attention immediately. And the Hebrew term for it is mopeth, and the Greek term is teros. And then there are powers, miraculous powers. This term is usually interpreted miracle in the scripture, chazak in the Hebrew, and dunamis in the New Testament. Of course, dunamis, power is used in a lot of contexts where it doesn't mean a miracle. But when it does mean a miracle, it's a mighty act of God's power. And when you look at passages of scripture that combine all of these together, probably one of the most outstanding is found in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. In verse 33, it says this. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation from Egypt by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a powerful, that is dynamic, powerful hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors? Has anyone done this as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In the New Testament, in Acts, the second chapter, of course, Pentecost has occurred, and Peter is preaching. And he said, You men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, that's the power, and wonders, something remarkable, and signs to draw attention to the message and the messenger. And this is what God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know it very well. So when you take a look at those three terms and the used in the context of those passages, it's pretty clear what a miracle is. It is often a, an unusual event, that is, it's a wonder, that God uses to validate the message or the messenger. It is a sign, and it is something of unusual force and power. The biblical purposes of miracles, we've said this several times in the past year. One of those is to glorify God. That's the main purpose. So in John, the second chapter in Cana, it says that Jesus performed his first miracle and therefore revealed his what? His glory to his disciples. And John, the 11th chapter, when Jesus is about to raise Lazarus, he tells us why he's doing it. He says, I'm doing this so that they might do what, Father? They might glorify you. A second purpose is to confirm the mess God's messenger. In Acts, the second chapter, we just mentioned, God bore witness that Christ was his messenger through the miracles that he performed, and they witnessed them. In Matthew, the 11th chapter, he tells the disciples of John, go and tell John what you see. This is proof that I'm God's messenger. What has happened? The blind have received their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are, are cleansed. It's proof that I've come from God. Thirdly, Miracles validate the message itself. In Hebrews, the second chapter, we're told that God testified of the gospel, the message, by signs and wonders and miracles. So they glorify God. They confirm the messenger. They validate the message. And fourthly, they help to give evidence for belief in God. In John, the 10th chapter, Jesus said, you know, you've seen the miracles you don't believe me. You don't believe what I'm saying. But if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the what? Believe the miracles, the, the signs that I'm performing. And they indicate this, that I and the Father are one. So it brings us to belief. And finally, a miracle, obviously. And sometimes we overlook this. A miracle helps people. Jesus, when he fed the 4,000, when he fed the 5,000, 
remarkable miracles. He was helping people with their daily needs. There's some arguments that are typically, typically used against miracles. The skeptics like David Hume use two or three different kinds of arguments, and you'll hear these repeatedly. The philosophic argument is that miracles violate natural law, and natural law has been firmly established, and it is unalterable, and since it's unalterable, then miracles cannot occur. It is incredible to believe that they do, the philosophic argument. There's also the historical argument. Hume would say this, we don't really have any credible witnesses of miracles. You see, their integrity was doubtful, their learning was low, their reputation was not high, and their motives were false. There weren't enough people that witnessed the miracles to validate them. They weren't witnessed publicly enough. They're simply accounts from a time of ignorance and barbarous cultures that were prone to, and here's the word again we mentioned two weeks ago, superstition. So he had a philosophic argument and a historical argument, but there was a religious argument. There are some other cultures, there are some other worldviews, as we mentioned, that might, might suggest miracles are possible. That is polytheistic. There are some religions that claim, make different claims based on those miracles. And Hume would say this, the conflicting claims then cancel each other out. And you can't say that your view of miracles is the valid one. That's a skeptical attack on miracles. There's also the scientific and the rational attack. When we look at the scientific methodology, those scientists that do not believe in miracles have a couple of approaches. Why? Because everything is matter. If a natural explanation cannot be found for it, it's simply because we don't know it yet. We need to wait to discover it. And if we can't discover it, then we will assume that a natural explanation must exist. So the natural presupposition. Also, too, though, there is an assumption that a miracle would be contrary to scientific methodology. You see, when faced with an irregular event, we can never explain it by a miracle. We must look for a natural explanation and if we cannot find a natural explanation, then what we do is we modify our view of natural law to accommodate it. You see, the rationale for this is to accept miracles would inhibit science. The acceptance of miracles ignores the future possibility of some kind of natural explanation, and therefore they say that miracles are invalid. So from a skeptical standpoint, philosophically, and from a scientific standpoint, there are those naturalists that would say that miracles are not possible. But we value miracles. I said at the beginning that miracles are at the center of the gospel story. What, what about uh, miracles in God's existence, for example? You know, some, some apologists will argue based on evidence from miracles to prove that God exists. And some begin by saying God exists, and then they look at the evidence of miracles. I would fall in the second category myself. I put a priority on believing that God exists. Because when we're convinced, and I am, that God exists, then the possibility of miracles follows. And two, frankly, folks, most skeptics will not believe in God because you show them miracles. Because they will say what? Miracles cannot happen. They question whether a true miracle will ever happen. But once we recognize the supportive value of miracles, they help to give evidence for God's existence. The evidence of miracles, if a person can be convinced that a miracle has occurred, 
it may be a pathway to leading them to believe that God exists. So there is some value in miracles and proving God's existence. What about miracles in the Bible? Miracles in the Bible help to validate its reliability. When they confirm the fulfillment of prophecy and the consistency of the message, they have great value. And when persons do become convinced, when a skeptic does become convinced that the biblical record might be accurate, then the miracles recorded in the Bible become further proof, powerful proof of the evidence of its truth. So miracles are significant in relationship to Scripture. Miracles help people, and that's important for us not to overlook. When we read about God delivering Israel, who is a God like this that can deliver? He delivered them through plagues, through miracles, through the Red Sea, to help them, to free them from slavery. Jesus helped people. He healed them. He exercised demons. He fed them. He raised the dead. He helped people. And this continued through the apostles. They did the same. And by doing so, God used those signs and wonders to do what? To attract great numbers of people to the gospel and to build his church. So miracles help people and they help to build the church. Biblical miracles confirm God's truth. Most miracles are related to some kind of truth claim. They validate or they verified the Old Testament prophets. When, when God told Moses to go before Pharaoh, he said, I'm going to give you three signs that indicate that you are from me. One was the staff that turned to the snake and the snake turned to the staff. The other was the leprous hand. And the other one that he didn't perform until he was with, with the Pharaoh was the Nile water turned to blood. God confirmed that Elijah was his prophet before 450 prophets of Baal by destroying the, the offering and the prophets that Elijah offered. God verified Jesus' messiahship through Nicodemus. What did Nicodemus say? We know that you must come from God because no teacher could perform the kind of miracles that you have performed. Peter said that God credited Jesus and his ministry at Pentecost through miracles. It validated the, the apostolic office. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, the sign of a true apostle was performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Some, some biblical miracles do not validate a truth claim. They were simply to accomplish God's will. So for example, when uh, Enoch was translated. That doesn't mean that it was to validate some kind of truth claim. When manna came from heaven, it was to feed God's people. But most miracles validated some kind of truth claim. They were supernatural confirmations of God's message, and they were consistent with the truth. Never did any miracle violate the truth. God initiated them in either timing or intervention. They were unusual, unrepeatable events that happened immediately, and they were always successful. All of those are signs that miracles are supernatural. And they were uniquely genuine events. They could not be imitated exactly the way God did them. Pharaoh's counselors tried to imitate them, and they had a couple or three good facsimiles but they were drawn from dark powers and eventually Moses ultimately outdid them. They were superior in power to anyone who tried to imitate them. 
So when the seven sons of Sceva tried to exercise demons, the demons came out and beat them up. Crowds recognized that these miracles were special when Jesus performed them. They were truly unique. They were amazed and they were drawn to his message. Most of these miracles were confirmed by multiple witnesses, despite what Hume said. Most of Jesus' miracles were witnessed by large crowds. He fed how many? 5,000. And the next time, how many? 4,000. How many witnesses were there to the resurrected Lord? Does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 15? Over 500 witnesses. So Hume saying that they were limited and they weren't public is in fact not true. And many, many miracles fulfill prophetic predictions. Moses predicted, for example, that Aaron's rod would bud, and it did. Jesus predicted his crucifixion and resurrection on at least four occasions. So all of these things point to the uniqueness and the validity of miracles that confirm God's message and his messenger. The truths of no other religion apart from Christianity are attested by as many miracles as we find in Scripture. So how do we apply our message about miracles this morning? Well, number one, do miracles still occur? I think that that's an obvious question. So when we ask what happened to Oscar Thompson, do miracles still occur? You know, there's some that turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and they say, well, no, miracles don't occur. I was reading a blog in preparation for this sermon, and there was an author that built his whole argument around that it did. What does it say? It says tongues will cease, prophecy will cease, and knowledge will cease. This is an end times prophecy, I, I believe, folks. And this is highly contested, what I'm about to say and debate it. Does prophecy continue today? Do tongues continue today? Well, you may debate all in the world that you want about that. You may debate about whether or not what I'm doing today is prophetic and prophecy or not. I believe it is. I believe I'm telling forth the word of God. We may have a lot of debate about tongues, but there's no question in my mind, folks, that knowledge has not ceased. So cessationist theologians that say all those things stopped in the first century, I don't think that their theory holds water. But the fact of the matter is miracles are not mentioned in there. I find no place in the scripture that says that miracles stopped at the end of the apostolic age. I believe that they still occur. Secondly, I think we need to be careful that we don't trivialize miracles. Oh, that was a miracle. That was a miracle. That was a miracle. Beverly and I were talking about this, and she said, well, it's sort of like love. You know, we trivialize the word love, don't we? Oh, I love this. I love that. I love hamburgers. I love pizza, you know. And I love you, too. <laughs> don't say that on Valentine's Day that way. <laughs> the analogy is sometimes, you know, we flip out the word miracle, you know, kind of casually. We have to be careful about this. Uh, you know, about, about our own gullibility, you know, accepting things that other people say are miracles just at face value. Folks, when God performs a miracle, I believe this, I believe we know it. I believe we know it. Just like revival, did revival occur? Did revival occur in this time in history? When revival occurs, you know it because the Holy Spirit is poured out and there's a complete transformation of society. When a miracle occurs, I believe we know it. And I think that they happen today. But we have to be careful that we're not gullible. And we have to be careful when we're talking to non-believers about just calling anything a miracle because if we do, then they will challenge us if our message is indefensible. We need to be aware of charlatans. 
those who claim to do miracles on demand. Jesus never did that. As a matter of fact, when the Pharisees said, show us a sign, he said, what? Nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. He did not do them on demand. Hmm. Nor should we try to do so. Those who, who seek to profit from them, Simon Magus's or Magi, whatever it is today, who use the Holy Spirit for profit. That's not one of the five biblical purposes that I mentioned, friends. Beware of charlatans who proclaim they can do miracles. Can miracles be proven? And the answer is no. Can miracles be proven to be miracles in a scientific way? No, they are the violation of natural events, and since it involves nature, they cannot be tested in the scientific laboratory. There is no airtight, scientific, rational explanation for a miracle, because as we have said before, if you can prove that God exists in the scientific laboratory, then you've got a test tube God. If you can prove that a miracle is empirically, absolutely, 100% provable in the scientific lab, you've got a test tube miracle. That's the nature of miracles, friends. They are mysterious. They are God acting. They're not something that we fabricate with our minds and that we prove in the scientific laboratory. You see, all miracles are mysterious. They're a matter of faith and believing the biblical record of divine revelation that they occurred. Now, let me close with this. What would you say are the three greatest miracles? The three greatest miracles that ever occurred. Well, I believe the first was creation, creation. You see, if the cosmos had emerged from eternal matter, you know, and it just evolved because it had always been there, then God would be a myth. But the fact of the matter is the scripture tells us that God has given us clear evidence when we look at the universe that he created it. He is the eternal, supernatural, sovereign creator who made it. Bara. Ex nihilo nothing. What a great miracle. I think the second great miracle is the resurrection. If it were not true, then we are deluded. And as Paul said, we are of all people most what? Most miserable. But since it is true, it is the most important event since creation. If it were not true, the Bible is largely irrelevant. But since it is true, it is the most important message that the Bible tells us since creation. Creation and the resurrection. What is the third great miracle? I would propose to you that it is redemption. Redemption and sanctification. You see, Christ's atonement was a supernatural event. His atonement is that which cleanses us from our unrighteousness and makes us right before God. If we then confess our sin as we did today in our worship service and we mean it, then he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he has given us his spirit. He has poured out his spirit. And his spirit inhabits you. And folks, that is a great miracle. That the Holy Spirit of God has come to live in you. And to sanctify you. And to transform you as a believer. And I believe this. That is a miracle. I don't think that's trivializing the term miracle. The fact that you have believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The fact that he has redeemed you from sin and death. The fact that he has put his Holy Spirit in you and he walks with you every day. The fact that he sanctifies you every day. The, the, the fact that he's willing to listen to you when you confess your sin and cleanse you anew every day. That is a remarkable miracle because it gives us eternal life 
And that is miraculous indeed. I believe the one indisputable evidence of a miracle that you can depend on when you share with friends is this, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life has been rescued from sin and death. Your life then has been redeemed and you have been cleansed and justified before God Almighty and you have the promise of eternal life. And when you breathe your last breath or if the Lord comes before you do, there is a place prepared for you in heaven and you have eternal life. And that is a great, great mystery and it is a miracle of God. He created us miraculously. His son was resurrected miraculously and made atonement for our sins. And he has redeemed you from sin and death and given you eternal life if you believe in him. Miracle is at the core of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.